my guest on this best of episode is Samin Nosrat, who is studying English at Berkeley when she took this crazy detour into the kitchen at the iconic Chez Panisse restaurant in Berkeley, California, that would change the course of her life. She fell in love with food, with the business of food, with the art and craft of cooking and the kitchen, the community, and how that blended with her love of taking care of people that she loved. Eventually, she worked her way up becoming a cook and took meticulous notes about the process, discovered that cooking came down to four things, salt, fat, acid, and heat. And if you could master these things, you could cook anything for anyone, anytime, without even using recipes. She began to teach and then penned this gorgeous illustrated cookbook called, you guessed it, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, which became this massive phenomenon and then launched a TV series by the same name. Along the way, she has also awakened to and become very open about living with her own mental stresses and depression and anxiety and how she has navigated this, especially as her career and her life have made her much more of a public person and persona. We explore all of this in today's really rich and wonderful best of conversation. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. show is sponsored by meditation app 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author, Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. There's a lot of family secrets that I'm not fully privy to, <laughs> so I have sort of done my best to piece things together, but I still don't know all of the information still. But my dad's family is a religion called Baha'i, yeah, and my mom's family is Muslim, and Baha'is were persecuted for many years and um, in Iran, and so I think people of who were not Muslim in Iran sensed oppression sort of slowly coming down. So even though they weren't, you know, it's not like they had a premonition that the revolution was going to happen. They knew, they knew something was happening. So everyone in my dad's family sort of split into like spread all over the world. People were, went to Australia and Europe and um, nah. all different places. And my grandparents came to San Diego. I just, I don't know exactly why. And then my dad followed and he brought my mom. Yeah, um, it's amazing. It's interesting your dad's Baha'i. Um, we had Andy Grammer on a little while back, who's also a Baha'i. This is the first time I'd ever actually heard of that faith. It's interesting also that that was highly sort of persecuted because it seems like this, a practice which is so embracing and welcoming of all faith. It's like I, it draws from everything. Yeah, I think it 
from my my understanding is that it's a really open and uh, open-hearted religion but i think since um the main sort of problem <laughs> as i understand it was that one of the main five tenets of islam is that muhammad is the final prophet of god and so like the fact that you know 150 years ago the prophet of um the bahai faith sort of stood up and was like, no, no, one more. <laughs> that was uh, offensive to many Muslims. So it became this really complicated thing. Yeah. So were you brought up with, I mean, since it's like part of the reason that your folks actually came to the U.S. was driven by faith, were you brought up in a tradition of faith at all when you no, got here? No, neither. I think basically my dad wasn't very religious. My mom wasn't very religious. And in order to satisfy their families, they, my dad sort of like, I think he even signed like a notarized document saying that he was agnostic. And so there was definitely, I think, a, a vague sense of God. But everything in our family was much more about being Iranian than being any one religion. And I've never considered myself religious. So. Yeah. Tell, tell me more about that also because – so your family lands in, in the late 70s in San Diego. It, it, was there much of an Iranian community at uh, that point? I we were, I was much more aware of the Iranian community in LA, which is only two hours away. So it's not that, um, yeah. And, and, and for holidays and stuff, we would drive to LA to do grocery shopping because that's where the really good Persian groceries were, but there were absolutely Persian groceries in San Diego too. And at my high school, there was quite a large Iranian population, but they were kind of a different kind of immigrant kids than I was. So I didn't fully fit in with them. But before high school, it was rare for me to bump into other Iranian kids. Yeah, what kind of kid were you? A really weird one. <laughs> <laughs> can I can I just tell you something? I have had so many, so many people on the podcast who have answered essentially the exact same thing to a similar question, and then like zoom forward 30, 40, 50 years, they're living the most stunning lives and contributing in the most incredible creative ways. I mean, I think a lot about that idea that what seems to have been a constant in my life is that I have always felt like I don't fit in. And until I started going to therapy about 10 years ago, I really felt like it was my job to show up in a room and figure out, sort of read a room or read um, a person who I was interacting with, figure out which version of me would make them like me the most or make me be the most, either blend in the most or appreciated the most or liked the most and be that version of me, which has made me really good at certain things. I'm a chameleon. You know, some people call it code switching. I'm very likable to many people. But I also, that what I did was I sacrificed like any knowing who I was. Yeah, it's like you're perpetually <laughs> hiding. Yeah, totally. So I'm trying to do a lot of sort of like work of quieting down on the inside and trying to figure out what makes, you know, who am I? What do I like to do? Sometimes my therapist will say like, what would bring you joy? You know, mm. or, or like, what's play feel like? And I'm like, I don't know. What's joy? Like, you know, <laughs> like, can you define joy for me? <laughs> yeah, totally. like, what are the five bullets yeah. there? Yeah. And so, but I, I think I'm doing a better job of that. And, and also it's a skill that I've spent a life honing and I'm really good at that thing. I'm really good at making people feel comfortable and that's not a bad thing. And in uh. fact, that's something that I've turned into part of my work and I'm really proud that I can do that. 
But I just know now not to do it at the cost of my own sanity and like self-awareness. Yeah. Do you ever actually almost like catch yourself going into that as like your default mode and be like, wait a minute, is this actually helpful or is it harmful at this point? I, um, I don't know that I'm good enough to catch myself in the moment, but I have at least reached a point where I, I can recognize which situations make me go into that mode. And so I'm a little, I can sort of prepare myself a little bit to be like, maybe today I'll, I'll do that a little bit less, you know, (laughs) like basically the higher stakes, the situation, the more readily I'll slip into that mode. If it's some meeting somebody I really admire or who, you know, if like yesterday on the today show, you know, or whatever. (laughs) And so I'll just catch myself and be like, okay, I don't need to do that. I don't need to like be the version that they, that I think they'll want. I can just be myself. Yeah. So so now I'm curious because, um, if you look at, you know, from the outside looking in, you look at you on, on screens, on this and that, you would appear like you present like a raging extrovert. But I'm sensing that's not entirely true. I've always been ENFP on the Myers-Briggs, like no matter how many times yeah. I take it. And I do think in the beginning, I, th- I thought it was a very, like very obviously that I was an extrovert, very ragingly so. And now I think I might be like barely an extrovert. Huh. I very like much just over the edge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I very much need alone time. I need quiet time. And the thing I've learned is even though I can perform in very social situations really well, it takes a lot of energy. Mm. So I have to make sure that I can give myself the time and the opportunity to restore because otherwise, then I'm just like running on fumes, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm wired yeah. so similarly. Yeah. Like, I, I love being on a stage in front of thousands of people, but as soon as I'm off, like, I want to be alone for yeah. the, rest of, yeah. the rest of the day. And I often actually, even in a big party or something, I often have the best time just talking to one person, yeah. you know? Yeah. So what you're describing is very much like the introverted side yeah. spectrum. It's like... Um, but you have the ability to turn it on and be social. But it's also interesting that you have, like, you've developed really strong social skills uh, almost as a way to sort of um, protect yourself. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I think a lot of people do. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's been such an interesting journey to um, peel back the layers of myself, you yeah. know? <laughs> and yeah, I'm just so curious about who's under there. So what what makes you want to go, because if this has been a pattern your whole life, what's the trigger that actually makes you say, huh, you know, um, therapy sounds interesting. <laughs> Why did I start going yeah. to therapy? Oh, I'm so glad I did. I was in, so maybe, I'm trying to, it might not have been quite 10 years ago, might have been a little bit less, but um I have always been pretty anxious and it was a time when I had left the kitchen. I'd left sort of my long term steady source of income Mm. and I had made a commitment to myself that I was going to try to write and switch to making, you know, more money from writing, which is not an easy thing to do. So I had some money saved up and I was ready to sort of commit myself to this and... (laughs) It was just a lot harder than I thought. And then I got, I was riding my bike and I got doored, you know, when somebody oh, yeah, yeah. Totally. Like, That's opens awful. the door. Yeah. Over that the was handlebars. Really or... Yeah. I didn't have to go all the way. I didn't go all the way over the handlebars, but I injured my right knee from that. And then I'd already injured my left knee. So I Oof. was, and my left knee required surgery. And so there was just sort of this like mounting pile of things to be, make my life really hard and sad. And also in retrospect, I was depressed 
And so my best friend was like, you are like, you have to go to therapy. And I was like, what are you talking about? We go to yoga. (laughs) (laughs) Same thing. I was like, I don't need to go to therapy. And he's, he was like, it's not the same thing. So his boyfriend actually got the phone out and called his therapist and left a message and said, or made me leave a message saying, you know, I need to talk yeah. to you. And the therapist called me back and he said, you know, my um, schedule's pretty packed. I'm not sure I have room for you, but tell me what's going on and I'll try to find you somebody. So we had a chat for maybe 30 minutes and he was like, you know what? I do think we could be a good fit. And so maybe you should come in. So I went in and it's been a great fit. That was my, I was really lucky. I found the person on the first try. Yeah. And it's, I don't, you know, I think some of it has been my growth. I think some of it was things that I wasn't maybe ready for at the beginning, but certainly the way that we do our work together has changed and evolved so much over this time. I think also he is learning and evolving what he wants to do in his work. And so Mm. there's a lot, often I go in there and I'm like, just tell me what to do. (laughs) And he won't tell me anything. And he's like, but how does it make you feel? (laughs) (laughs) Like, dude, we're 10 years into this. Just once tell me, just like give me the answer already. So yeah, but it's, I, I am so grateful for that. And in it also, over time, it took us years to get to the point where I was ready to admit that I was depressed Mm. and anxious and put words to these feelings that I felt my whole life and take medicine for it, which has been life changing. Yeah. It's been a journey and I'm so I don't I honestly don't know that I could function. I probably would have imploded at some point if I didn't have this practice. Well, I'm glad you did. Me too. Um, I'm I'm curious too. I mean, it took years to admit that you were depressed and I get like it's it's a really difficult thing from the inside looking out, especially. Do you have a sense sort of reflecting? that any of that was related to sort of cultural perceptions of depression from your background, from your family? I'm sure, yes, definitely a big part of it. And, you know, for years I didn't admit to my parents that I I go to therapy or that I was on antidepressants because I was afraid of, and my mom sort of sussed it out on herself and she's pretty judgmental about it actually. So she wasn't excited that I was doing it, but like I, I, by the time she realized that I was taking antidepressants and was in therapy, I knew that they were so good for me that I, you know, I couldn't, I wasn't going to change that for my mom. So that's a big part of it is my, you know, whatever my parents' ideas about it were, but also my own ideas about it, which I'm sure were heavily influenced by not only my parents, but also culture. And so part of my resistance to taking antidepressants was I won't be myself anymore. Mm. And this pain is actually what fuels my creativity and makes me a sensitive person. Yeah, you hear that from so yeah, many artists. Totally. Yeah. And I was like, but I won't be able to do the thing and relate to people. And that's not true at all. <laughs> and also I had said, I was like, what if it dulls everything? You know, it'll dull the pain, but it'll dull everything else. And that's not what it was at all. You know, oh, I had a big one, which was the reason I feel this way is because I'm not doing it right and I'm not working hard enough. Mm. And if I just figure out what to do and do it better and work harder then this will go away. And what was so remarkable was that, A, I take the very lowest possible dose of this antidepressant. It didn't take very much to make me feel better. And B, it was like overnight, almost, I think within three days, I felt like this ball of just sadness. I had, you know, since I could remember, I'd had this basically rock in the pit of my stomach. Mm. And that was gone. And I went into therapy within the first week of taking the medicine. And I was like, I I feel different. 
And he said, yeah, you know, like I suspect that you've probably been depressed since you were 18 or 19. Mm. And I was like, I've been coming to you for four years. You didn't say anything. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and But I wouldn't have been able to take it. I wouldn't have been able to hear it. Like I had to get there on my own. And he very much knew that. Anyone who's, um, you know, it's not like I feel like everyone should be medicated, but like anyone who's I see has that same idea of I won't be me or I just need to work harder. I try to share that with them because those aren't reasons to not do this thing that's better for, that's good for you. Yeah. And also a lot of people can go on it and then go off of it. Like sometimes it's just a temporary thing, right. but yeah, I'm very clear now that it's just like some chemical thing in my body, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's amazing that you, like one of the reasons for you was this idea that it's like wrapped up in, you have to, it's like, you almost have to have a, a certain amount of suffering to to have the raw material to create on a level that like you know like is badass that's really like good and different at the highest level and there's such a common theme and assumption among any creators across like every creative domain like I've heard that so many times I'm sure you have also and it's not you know like you've got the prototypical you know like somber you know like deep dark you know writers writers especially but what's interesting if you look at the research even you know, one of the things that tends to go along with depression is inaction. Like you can't, so it's like, okay, so you've got all this suffering like to write about, but you can't pick up a pen or a pencil or like get on the keyboard to actually do anything with it because you're immobilized, you're paralyzed within this state. So it's, yeah, I mean, but again, like when you're in it, it's not a rational thought process. No, not at all. Yeah, not at all. And what's interesting is I've recognized I am just a person <laughs> who will never feel like I'm doing the work unless I suffer, you know, unless I'm doing something, unless it's a really hard, I make everything more difficult for myself. <laughs> I don't feel like I've earned it until it's really hard. And I've done it over 90 times. I have two friends that I can think of who are both really successful writers who just, who it seems to just flow out of. And I know that that's a judgment from the outside. Cause I'm sure I know everyone's process is different and nothing. No writing is just easy. But they're much quicker than I am. They're much faster writers who don't seem to belabor everything. Mm. And we've talked about it. And I'm like, and and they're like, why, are you, why do you make it so hard? And I was like, I just don't, you know, so for a while I was trying to be more like them. And I'm not like them. And I realize I'm just not going to be that person. And I kind of like the revising. I kind of like the hard part. I kind of, but that's not the same as feeling like I have to, um, put myself through the most awful, awful thing in order to be a human, you yeah. know? So the work process and the human process are two different things. And once I recognize that about myself and that I actually really like, George Saunders wrote this beautiful, beautiful piece. I think it came out last year and it was in The Guardian and it was about, it was one of the best ways I've ever seen the process of writing described. And I'm going to sort of mess it up. And he described... How that like he was like, imagine a person who's setting up like a miniature train train set and creating a whole scene with that train set. And so like there's a train going by and there's a woman in a building and there's a man across the street. And if you, you know, put the woman at just this angle so she's looking at that man, you might think that there you might be able to make up a story about them in the back of your mind about how maybe she's sad that he's way over there, he's left her. And they're waving. But if you turn her 15 degrees, they have no relationship, actually. And she's just staring out into the, 
you know, into the wild or whatever. And so what a writer has to do, every every part of writing is imagining every possible scenario between those two people and trying them out and then sort of using a little bit of like a value gauge and thinking about it every time is, does this change, you know, push me a little bit more toward good or toward that's bad? And every single decision in writing is trying all of those different scenarios and then just every single time taking a step back and being like, is this better or is this worse? Is this better or is this worse? And that's everything that I, my experience of this yeah. work has been is that there's no linear, linear, linearity, <laughs> linearness to it. <laughs> and so you just have to try everything. Also, one of my favorite quotes about writing is from um, Flaubert, 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 who said, prose is like hair. It shines with combing. Like you just have to go over it over and over, over and, and over, over again. Yes, yeah, so and, true. <laughs> and, you know, for me, cooking was that. I was trained at the beginning very much in the idea that practice and just doing something over and over again is what makes you good at it. And this was before, you know, 10,000 hours, like Malcolm Gladwell's story uh, piece had come out. And they were always telling me, you won't know anything about cooking until you've been cooking for 10 years. And so I am a student of practice. And when it comes to writing and storytelling, practicing just means doing it over and over again, every possible way until you figure out the best possible combination. And that's really overwhelming if you think about it because a lot of my anxiety in writing often comes from not wanting to do that work mm, yeah, <laughs> or just entering a process and knowing how many different times I'm going to have to redo this and being really like having so much dread about it. <laughs> but I also like that suffering. I like that pain. I like that work and it's just who I am. But I don't think that I need to have that in my like emotional life, you know? <laughs> yeah. And also, I mean, when you do that in the context of, I mean, if you're just walking through life and making everything difficult and that causes suffering, I think that's one thing. But if you look at a process where you're like, you know, like it's, it's an expression of your identity. You're like, I am a writer, right? And you're like, there's a process that I want to go through. And at the end of this, like, I'm working to create something that I hope will be extraordinary and be of service to others, right? I think the... When you look at the work and the repetition, the iteration, and yes, I'm a writer also, it's, they're suffering and there's no doubt. But when you can assign it meaning because your work, like it's in the name of something, it changes the way you experience it mm -hmm. to a certain extent. Do you mm -hmm. feel that? I mean, Absolutely. I, I don't think like, I don't mean to rationalize like creating suffering in the name of suffering, but when you know there's just part of the process is going to be unease. But it's in the name of something. Agreed. And like for me now, I just know that it ta I'm slow and it takes me a long time to make something. Mm. And that sort of all of that doubt is part of the process. And instead of feeling, instead of beating up myself for feeling that doubt and pain, I just understand that that doubt and pain is part of the way to get there. It's funny because um, Wendy McNaughton, the amazing illustrator who illustrated my book, she just started a column at the New York Times for the business section. And oh, I, I didn't even catch that yet. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna have to start reading it's it. maybe been three or four weeks. It's really oh, wow. great. It comes awesome. out on Sundays. And so for her, the pace of her column is pretty bananas. It's once a week. And she not only has to go report the story and write it, but she also illustrates it and has to do the layout. It's a lot of work. Yeah. And I think, yeah, it's a very overwhelming thing. And I have a column that I write in the Times Magazine, but mine's just once a month. And already I, I couldn't, there were people, there have been people in the past who've done that column once a week 
or twice a month. And I can't imagine because for me to get the writing down and test the recipe and then, you know, do my fact checking and my reporting, all this different steps, it takes usually two and a half or three weeks for just one. So to be juggling multiples of those would be, to me, impossible to do. And we talk a lot about the process of the work and it just is hard. Like, And it's been really gratifying for me to have a friend now who's in it with me. Yeah. And so that we, she understands, we understand together what it is. And there's so much anxiety about it. And, and also sometimes what happens is a friend will ask me like, oh, I have a cookbook coming out. Would you consider writing about my cookbook? And in the column, which I don't do anymore, but I did it once. And also because I really liked my friend's cookbook and I found something to say about it. Or I took I took a story, a feature story for the magazine because I was offered one and I was like, ooh, I should have that. I should write a feature story. And both of those pieces caused me so much more grief than any one that I've ever had where I come up with the idea. And same thing has happened to Wendy where she has some ideas for her columns that are assigned to her by her editors and other ones that she comes up with. And she has a lot of time struggling with the ones that she doesn't time. come up. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and in fact, this week, I think we had, we, she, we talked to her a long time because she was really hurting and she was trying to figure out. And I said, I don't know if this will translate to what you do, but I have to sort of, the thing I do that t- is t- like, I've, I've learned over practicing this column, you, you know, now a year and a half is I sort of have to write around something until I get to a point where like, I feel like I figured out what I'm writing toward. Mm. What is the point of this? What am I trying to teach with people or share with people? And I only have 800 words to do it. It's not like this, you know, but I need to figure out what's the point and how I'm gonna connect with my reader. And once I figure that out, usually all the rest falls into place, but often it takes me a day or two days or sometimes a week or two weeks to figure out what that is. And that's the painful part. (laughs) And so, and, and when things are assigned to me or I do them for a reason other than I want to tell a story or share this, it's a lot harder for me to get to that point. And sometimes I can't even find what it is because I'm not moved from the inside to share this thing with the world. Right. It's like, it didn't come from an an innate curiosity that Mm -hmm. just kind of popped up within you. So it's almost like you have to, it sounds like what you're doing is you keep writing around it until you can find like what what's your inline like where, where's your on ramp for your own personal curiosity exactly even though it might not have been sort of like the the bigger thing that was originally exactly. assigned to you exactly and so yeah and it also you know and I also have other things I need to accomplish in that column like when they gave it to me Sam Sifton said I don't care what you write about your recipe needs to be killer and it needs to be something <laughs> that everyone wants to make right so, so there's he, a whole technical side yeah, of it like that yeah, yeah exactly and it needs to make a beautiful photo so there are a lot of like elements that I have to juggle into each column, just like Wendy does. And so in a weird way, we have this analogous project that we're doing, you know, these projects. And it feels really nice to have a friend who's in it with me because I'm not a regular writer who's just writing an op-ed each week. You know, I'm not reporting stories because like they're newsworthy and I need to do that. There's another reason and it has to come from inside me. Yeah. And I just have to get used to that. Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new Marketing Hub Enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create 
create more personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash Wondery. That's hubspot.com slash Wondery. Good Life Project is supported by Aqua True. We all need to drink water, a lot of it actually, to stay hydrated, healthy. Something like 60% of our bodies are made of water. And if you are like me, you may not entirely trust your tap water. Virtually every household has some level of harmful contaminants in their water. We have been using a revolutionary new water purifier called AquaTrue. It's certified to remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters. AquaTrue is a four-stage countertop purifier that works with no installation or plumbing. When we got ours, I was a little bit nervous that, about what it might take to set up. It was so easy. And literally minutes later, we had a new source of purified water in the house at the push of a button. It was just so easy and we love it. And the patented ultra reverse osmosis technology is certified to remove 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, lead, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and so many others. It's the same technology used by all the major bottled water brands. And in these challenging times, I mean, why worry about sold out water bottles when you can make your own at home? Just one set of filters makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. That's less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you'll save the environment from tons of plastic waste. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and AquaChew comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, and they have thousands of satisfied customers. Best of all, the water just tastes great. We actually did a side-by-side comparison in our home and noticed how pure and clean and refreshing it tasted. And today, our listeners get $100 off an AquaChew plus free shipping. Just go to aquatrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code GOODLIFE at checkout. That's $100 off plus free shipping when you go to aquatrue.com and use the code GOODLIFE or just click on the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. I mean, it sounds like there are a lot of parallels between your at least your personal writing process and cooking for you. For sure. I mean, there are, I think I understand things through cooking because it was the first profession that I learned. And it was the first thing I ever sort of, I mean, I don't want to claim mastery, but, you know, I reached some level of like proficiency at. <laughs> and um, because I'm a curious person, because I consider myself to be like a student of things, I have never forgotten what it feels like to not know. Mm -hmm. And I just like pushing, you know, I've, I've known other chefs and cooks who even before the age of 30 will tell me stuff like, Oh, I'm done learning. Like I don't need to go to whatever country and work with whatever person. Like I can't even fathom that. Can you imagine being (laughs) done learning? (laughs) Like, Oh my God. I wouldn't want, like I wouldn't wish that for me. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I'm like, how boring and sad and like, yeah, full of yourself is that. So to me, I'm like, I could go anywhere and learn any, something new from anyone certainly in cooking. And, and I think cooking and understanding that good cooking is all about practice has in a lot of ways informed my understanding of how to write. 
which I really, I mean, it's something I've done my whole life, but I came to professionally only 10 years ago, you know, and, um, which was 10 years into my cooking career. So, yeah. So, um, we kind of took a big, yeah, sorry, we skipped a whole bunch of stuff. (laughs) Uh, Let's, uh, um, maybe let's take a bit of a jump back and fill in some of the big gaps here. So, cause we have mentioned that you have cooked, (laughs) But you didn't. You weren't brought up in a household where, where you know, like you were. You had a deep interest in cooking or in, in the culinary world in any way, shape, or form when you were younger. In fact, you were. So, you know, it's almost like you come full circle. You, know, you were interested in writing in your younger mm-hmm. life, and you went to college and were up in Berkeley studying that. But then everything changed. Yeah, my I don't have any older siblings. When I was little, my aunt, one of my aunts, lived with us, and she was a student, you know, at some college in San Diego, and she was a librarian with her work study, which at the, you know, now I understand she hated that job, but like, to me, I looked up to her so much and I was like, she's a librarian. I want to be a librarian when it's I like grow surrounded up. by books yeah. all day, every day. <laughs> I have always loved books. It's, you know, and I, it's all I have ever, to me to have a book was the highest thing that I could possibly ever achieve. And so, and I also just, it didn't even occur to me that it wasn't everyone else's life goal. Like I was like, this is so amazing. Why wouldn't everyone want to write a book? Right. I saw, um, I don't know if it's valid enough. I saw a study recently that said something like 95% of people all feel like they have a book in them that they want to write. I love that because yeah. I believe it. I think that that, yeah, I love that. I think there's something so universal about personal stories. Mm. And so like you can connect almost to anyone. And if you can't connect to them, like because you have something in common, then maybe you can understand them. And yeah. so, yeah, I don't know. I, I would, I love, I love that. So yeah, I always wanted to write my mom, you know, my parents are from Iran. Like I'm a child of immigrants. There are three acceptable job paths. <laughs> I think you could probably all guess yeah. them, right? <laughs> Doctors one. Doctor, lawyer, and engineer. <laughs> right. <laughs> Apparently the other day I was talking to a friend who's, um, she's from Africa and for her, what was also acceptable was some sort of tech job. So. <laughs> a fourth one. Yeah. <laughs> like, and yeah, tech engineer or something, computers. And so I, of those ones, I chose doctor. I was like, and so I was like, I'm going to be a doctor when I grow up. And then when I was in 10th grade or 11th grade, I had this incredible English teacher who really sort of saw that I could write. And then I had this interest in words and books and fostered that. And he gave me my first um, subscription to The New Yorker. Mm. We read poetry and we wrote poetry. And he really, really encouraged that part of me. And so by the time I was ready to go to college, I knew I wanted to be an English major. And I thought I was going to graduate and be a poet and go to poetry school, (laughs) which costs (laughs) $90,000 and promises to never make $90,000. That, yeah, it was, that was like a confusing sort of possible life path, but that was what I wanted to do. I always had a sense in my heart that I would perish in a traditional office job. And so even when there were job fairs on campus, I was like, what am I going to do? Yeah, not happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and as a kid, we ate really well because my mom cooked beautiful Persian food every day. She spent a huge amount of her time shopping for it and cooking it for us. But she wasn't really pulling us into the kitchen. I think she wanted us to do our homework. And so I don't remember really ever being in the kitchen very much other than like setting the table, clearing the table, you yeah. know, putting the yogurt Just in like the bowl. what your average kid's yeah. going to do. Yeah. But I didn't, yeah, I wasn't like always at my mom's sort of knees begging to help. And then um, when I was in college, I moved to Berkeley, 
where um, Chez Panisse restaurant, Alice Waters restaurant, had been opened in 1971. And I remember... Which, for those who don't know, by the way, is this legendary, legendary place, as is Alice herself. Yeah, it's an American institution. I mean, she is a visionary who has changed the way this country has access to fresh ingredients. And she's changed the way that chefs think and work and sort of made it standard for sort of baseline for people to have seasonal, local, organic ingredients on their menus. And so it was revolutionary at the time. And now a kind of it's kind of a thing where the great chefs, they start there, you right. know, and then they go from there. And so it's and it's amazing. It's amazing. And she is amazing. And but this was 97. I moved to college in, to Berkeley in 97. So it was just the beginning of the internet. I think I got my first email address in 95 or something. And so there was not really celebrity chef culture in the same way. There was not food blogging or right. food internet. Was Food Network, it was maybe there just was a couple of years in Food at Network that point, existed. Right? Yeah. There was it's like not what a, it was now. a show with Emeril, you right. know, but it was not, it was not at all what it later became. And I had, again, like a very mild interest in watching that kind of food stuff. I, and I loved cooking shows as a kid, but I not more than I loved other shows, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so my first week, you know, they give you a college orientation and somebody was like, oh, there's this famous restaurant in town. And to me, I was like, what's a famous restaurant? Like, and I was like, oh, that's where white people's parents like take them you know, when they come visit, but my parents weren't going to take me there. Like my parents were not going to spend a hundred dollars on dinner. They were going to take me to some Persian restaurant or Mexican food or, you know, our family friend's house to eat. And we just didn't eat in fancy restaurants. I didn't even understand what was the point of a fancy restaurant. And so I sort of like, it went in, in one year and out the other. And then the next year I fell in love and my boyfriend was from San Francisco and we spent so much of our time eating together and learning about food together because I've always loved to eat. That's never been a question, you know? And he showed me, you know, his favorite Mexican place, his favorite ice cream place, his favorite pizza place. And he had always wanted to eat at Chez Panisse. And so it became this idea for us to save our money in a shoebox and go there once we had saved up like $220. So that took seven months and we made a reservation and we went there and the restaurant is um, divided into upstairs is right. is more informal cafe where you can order a la carte and downstairs is, is like a more formal dining room with a fixed menu. So we were like, okay, if we're only going once, we're going to go downstairs. So we went downstairs and it really was, I, I don't even know that I fully understood, my body fully understood what I was entering, you know, when I walked in, but it's a temple to the senses. The place is so beautiful but in the most understated way, and it feels very warm. And at the time, I had no way of knowing, you know, all of the handmadeness of the place. But it's so handmade in the most um, thoughtful and intentional way. And the art on the walls and the flower arrangements and the displays of fruit and vegetables and everything about it is so extraordinary. But again, really, really, really subtle and understated. And so I I think it probably hit me on some level, but I had no idea. You know, I was the child of immigrants. Aesthetics were not a priority for my family. Mm. You know, getting us in and out of school, <laughs> getting us fed, getting us like, um, you know, to be respected by our community. Those were the things that mattered. And so I just maybe absorbed it on some like cellular level. And I was so inspired 
by this meal where I felt so taken care of by the staff that I wrote a letter and I asked for a job. I always worked throughout college. And so they hired me pretty much on the spot, I think, in retrospect, that they were probably pretty, um, like, as a person who's now run a lot of restaurants, like, I think she was desperate and she needed someone because she was like, can you start tomorrow? <laughs> and I did. Which is interesting, too, because when you wrote that letter, were you... Did you even know what job you wanted or you just knew you wanted we, to be there? By then, by then I understood that some college students were bussing tables there. Okay. And so I was like, oh, maybe I can do that. And even in the letter I said, I've never worked in a restaurant. I don't have any food experience, but I can learn anything. And I, we saved up for this dinner and it was so extraordinary and magical. Please, like, give me this opportunity. Right. In your mind, like, what's – is this just a, like a – an interesting job at a, at a cool place, and but you're still on the path to being like a writer and pursuing. Yeah, doing I was all still this stuff. in school. I was still in. I wasn't gonna. No, I was too indoctrinated as an immigrant kid to like ever let go of my right. education. So for like, sure, this is, this is it was least, just a job. At least I get to earn some money on this yes. side in a cool place. Yeah, totally, yeah. and like beautiful food, which right. to me, I'm like, I just want to eat good stuff all right. the time. So yeah, I didn't ever occur to me that right. I would it wasn't like, Ooh, this is my thing. future. No, not at all. Yeah. I mean, I had a work study job before that where I basically filed papers in an office. So to me, this was a step up from that because right. I got to be in a beautiful social environment. And so with good food. <laughs> and so I started and almost immediately, you know, my very first job, my very first day, my first task was they walked me through the kitchen, which is just so beautiful and warm and quiet and running at such a sort of like slow, perfect hum or maybe fast, perfect hum. It's like a ballet. Like everybody knows how to move in that kitchen. And the walls are actually like a lot of them are lined with copper. So the way that the light ref mm. reflects the wall on the walls is this beautiful, warm light. And, you know, the chefs are all wearing these like gleaming white chef coats. And there's, again, beautiful produce displays everywhere. And it just, it seemed like a movie set or something, you know? And I walked through the kitchen into the dining room and they had me vacuum the floor. Even the vacuum was magical. It was like a central vacuum, which I had never seen before. It's just this like 40 foot hose that you plug in the ground and it starts sucking. And I was like, even the vacuum here is, is amazing. And I was, and I just, by then I sort of had some concept of what this place meant in the world. And I was like, I just can't believe they're letting me vacuum the floors. <laughs> it felt really like an honor. And I held on to that feeling the whole time I worked there because I saw a lot of other people grow jaded over time and you start to take it for granted because it becomes your normal. And I sort of told myself that I would leave before that happened to me. I wouldn't mm. let that happen. The day I didn't feel privileged to walk up that ramp and and come to work at this place, I didn't want to work there anymore. So, I mean, what, what was it that was happening internally with you that let you stay there, like work really, 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 really hard, sometimes on the most basic entry-level jobs where over a period of months or years, other people either burn out or get jaded and leave. But for you, it's like, no, I'm, I'm in. I mean, I also was only there total, I think, three three or three and a half years. So there, that jadedness comes to a lot of people around 20-year mark. <laughs> so that's part of it. And also like the food world is really hard. Yeah. And there are cooks there who anywhere else would be considered like award-winning chefs in their own right. Certainly at that point in time, there were the majority of the cooks who I learned from had been there over 20 years, mm. which is an extraordinarily long time to be a cook. And it's an, in like one an, place yeah, also. and it's an eon to be a cook yeah. in one place. And that 
says a lot about Alice and the cre- conditions that she creates for cooks and for people that says a lot about the fact that that restaurant exists for its cooks in many ways mm. and that it's a treat to work there. And you know it the whole time you're, because imagine if you're a farmer and you have, you know, there's, for example, there was for now, I think there are a few more people who grow mulberries, but at the time that I worked there, there was basically one mulberry tree. There was one mulberry tree in Northern California, and it was in Sonoma. And so, of course, the woman who grew those mulberries, the one place she would want to bring them to is Chez Panisse. You know, she has a, had, by that point, a 30-year relationship with them. And if she, she wants her fruit to be, like, you know, treated with the most ultimate respect on a menu where fruit is everything— She's going to bring it to this place. And so as a cook, you know you're never going to get to see those mulberries anywhere mm-hmm. else. You also know that any farmer, even if they're the same farmers selling stuff at the farmer's market, they're saving their most perfect tomatoes for Chez And so it's a luxury. It really is a luxury kitchen in so many ways. And you don't lose sight of that as a cook. You know, you know what you have. (laughs) And it's an amazing honor to get to work with that stuff. And it's really, it's so special. It's so, so, so special. So you're, I mean, you're there working in this environment, still going to school and sort of like diving in, working your way up and taking tons of notes from what I understand, Mm -hmm. like constantly, constantly making a lot of mistakes, but staying in it. So many mistakes. (laughs) Um, At what point do you start to realize, okay, so... I'm getting my degree at Berkeley. I'm on a path to be a writer, but this other thing is is happening and it's getting bigger and I'm getting drawn into it and I'm more and more interested. Was there a moment or was it just sort of like a gradual process where you're like, this is becoming my thing? I think by the time I'd worked there for about a year, I really was so um, admiring of the cooks that I wanted to be like them because it's so drilled into me that the only things that matter are things a person can get degrees for, you know, and that's definitely immigrant mentality. Like I wasn't going to let go of my education and I wasn't going to let go of the idea of even like a higher degree, but I also wanted this and I was so inspired by this and I really pushed for it. And every time I was told, no, there was always a, but there was like, no, but if you do this thing, if you, and they would give me sort of increasingly large set of hurdles, like read these books, cook from this thing, work for free for this many months, do this. And I think all of those were meant to discourage me from doing it, but I never got discouraged. I kept coming back. And at some point I was, you know, the chef who really became my mentor, Chris Lee, he told me, he said, he took me aside and he was like, listen, you have to want this. You have to want to be a cook more than anything else, more than you've ever wanted anything else, because there's no glory in it. There's no money in it. There's not really any respect. <laughs> like, like there's not, you're not going to get anything. So the only thing that's going to keep you going long-term is that you care very deeply about this and you want it so badly. And being the very earnest young student that I was and am, continue to be, I went home and I thought about that for a long time. Mm. And I wasn't ever sure that I did want it more than anything else because I really wanted to be a writer. But I came to him and I said, you know, and I said that, I said, I want this really badly. I will give everything I have, but I don't know that I want it more than anything else. And I think that that's true. I still true. I never wanted to be a chef with my own restaurant. I never wanted to have my name on like a line of olive oils or whatever. Those were not the things that I wanted. I just wanted to learn how to do this thing Mm. and be able to stand amongst these people and be one of them, you know, which goes back to my whole like 
thing that motivates me in my life is I just want to be part of the thing that everyone else is a part of or that I think everyone else is a part of. And so I think because I spent such careful time really feeling about getting my feelings clear about what I wanted, they were able to like, he was like, okay, fine. Like I'll let you in. And, and yet people never really discouraged me from writing or, or from following that other stuff. And I still tell this to anybody who is a young person who comes to me and aspires to be a cook. I say, I'm sure you care about something else. Do not let that go away. Mm -hmm. Invest in that too. Go to college too and be a cook. You know, learn ceramics too <laughs> and be a cook because cooking chews you up and spits you out. And I've watched, and that was what he was trying to tell me. You know, he was like, you're too smart to be a cook. Don't quit school for this. And at the time it seemed like the most glorious, glamorous thing. But a lot of those cooks who'd worked there for 20 years, um, we're still making 22 bucks an hour. And in a cook's in that kitchen, 22 bucks an hour is amazing. But in the, wor in the world, anyone else who is very masterful at what they've done and does it for 20 years, right. that's and, and very an often insult. works like 10, 15 hours yeah. a day, you know, yeah. seven days a week. Yeah. And not to say that everything's about money, but the Bay Area is a really expensive place to live. And so it's a really complicated thing. And for me, I think so much about like bigger social issues. So I understand the why of this has to do with our healthcare system and our government and subsidies and the way that Americans culturally don't want to pay for their food, you know, pay more money. And many of many Americans can't pay more for their food. So it's just, it's such a complicated thing, but I've watched it sort of play itself out in so many people's lives who I really care about. And I feel really angry about that and really bad about that. And I had someone who from the beginning warned me and I never forgot about that warning. So I did want to still be a writer. And I think the moment for me came a couple years into like when I was cooking part, like partish time and then working for one of my professors after I'd graduated. I was his like assistant. And then I also had a third job at, on campus where I um, – even though I'd graduated, I was still editing one of the school newspapers, like the art section. And so I sort of had all these juggling things and I had applied to get an MFA uh, in poetry. And I got accepted to Sarah Lawrence, which was the school I really wanted to go to. And I'd never visited New York before. And so it was the prospective students weekend. So I came to New York and on that same weekend, Chris Lee and his family were in Italy on their family vacation. And I knew that he was going there and I had asked him to ask Benedetta Vitali, this chef who had come and done a couple events at Chez Panisse, who I had met and really respected, if she would take me on as an apprentice in her kitchen. And so I came to visit Sarah Lawrence and it was amazing and very intimidating. And I felt like everyone was so worldly and there were all these big city people who knew how to take a train and I didn't know how to do any of that. And I was like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to pay this $90,000 and move to New York and figure this out? And Chris emailed me and he said, Benedetta said she would take you. You can come. So I ended up deferring the master's degree and going to Italy instead. I saved up like for six months to have enough money to go to Italy. And then I never ended up like, you know, going back to the poetry yeah. school. Because And then you were in Italy for three years or something uh, like that? I was in Italy for about two years, but okay. I was there for six months. And then I was applying for a Fulbright grant. Uh, Again, okay. because I was operating from yeah. this very student-driven, like intellectual, academic-driven place, which was the only way that I could understand like mastery in the world, you know, or 
like getting any degree of um, the outside respect, which also still honestly, like even my aunts and uncles still are like, when are you going to go get your PhD? I'm like, <laughs> I have a freaking TV show. Like, I'm not going to get a PhD. <laughs> like, you know? I'm doing okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, um, so I, I was applying for this Fulbright and I wanted to study traditional food making techniques in Italy that were disappearing because the European Economic Commission and the EU had changed all these laws in the late 90s to try and standardize food production techniques across the EU, which meant that food traditions that were like up to 3,000 years old in Italy were now illegal. Things like storing, um, there's a kind of cured meat called lardo di colonata, which is cured in mar these marble boxes. And colonata is close to like Carrera, where Carrera mar marble comes from. And so there are these beautiful marble boxes that are stored essentially in these very cold rooms. And this meat is cured in it in salt. And the marble turns out is antiseptic. And for 3,000 years, this this thing has been made this way. And people are not dead. <laughs> but all of a sudden this became illegal because it wasn't in a stainless steel kitchen with refrigeration. But the flavor comes from the air in the mountains and this whole process, you know. And so actually the people of Colonata like protested and ended up winning. So I thought this kind of stuff was really interesting. People sort of coming up to protect their traditions. And the Italians, of course, are so protective yeah. of their food traditions. And I wanted to work on that. So I researched and I wrote an application for that. And I like met miraculously got became a finalist but in order to not dis disqualify myself I had to leave Italy and so I came back to the states for a little while I returned to Chez and then I found out I didn't get it and I was heartbroken but Benedetta said come back um you can help me write a book which was the best possible thing was cooking <laughs> and writing yeah. yeah so I went back and we worked on a book in the end we she never published that but again I got to live there for another year and a half so which was really formative and really, really difficult in a lot of ways and really amazing. And yeah. also I became fluent in Italian by the end. And, you know, this really colored how I understood how to be a good cook for sure. So a lot of people ask me, what podcast do you listen to? One of my go-to shows, The Jordan Harbinger Show, is hosted by an old friend, Jordan. And besides being one of Apple's best of podcasts in 2018, I tune in because I love how Jordan invites guests with really powerful stories, always focuses on practical information, like how to read body language, nonverbal communication and negotiation. And he also shares his own extraordinary expertise in social dynamics on his solo episodes every week. Recent shows have featured an FBI hostage negotiator who teaches us how to get people to like and trust you, to neuroscientists and Navy SEALs who teach you how to develop resilience and mental toughness, not to mention amazing stories from people who have lived them. Recent episodes I've really enjoyed include Layla Ali, who's a former pro boxer and the daughter of Muhammad Ali. And Darren Brown was a great one also. He's one of the most mesmerizing mentalists and experts on human behavior and hidden influence on the planet, probably. So search for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, or go to jordanharbinger.com slash subscribe. And be sure to stick around till the end today where I'm going to have Jordan actually share a little bit about one of his favorite episodes. I mean, it's interesting too, if you sort of zoom the lens out underneath it all, it's like, you know, that you have this, you've always had this fierce desire to write and, the, you know, an emerging desire over a period of years, um, to cook and, 
and you've developed this extraordinary career path and the things you've accomplished are mind blowing. And yet it really doesn't seem like, you know, as, as fierce as you are, as hardworking as you are, as heads down and just like, I will do whatever it takes to succeed at this. The bigger trajectory is not one you plotted. Oh no. It wasn't intentional. No, no, it no. It was no. like you you just worked brutally hard. We're open to just keeping a beginner's mind the whole time. And it seems like that laid the foundation for serendipity to happen. I think serendipity is a huge part of it. And there's that Steve Jobs like commencement speech that he yeah. gave about looking backwards. Right, to and connect the dots. Connecting yeah. the dots backwards. And I that rang so true for me, even though I heard it, you know not that deeply and not, I wasn't that deep into my career when I first listened to that speech, but I understood you can't plot these things, you know, and and the kind of life that I have and the kind of career that I have, I can't like plan that it's going to take five steps of this, this, and this and medical school and then residency and internship to get to being a doctor. You know, I don't have that. There's no roadmap for me. And so all I know is I can do something that I care about and work really hard. And of course, I have really ambitious, I have had really ambitious ideas about what the best is, you know, and what's the thing. Mm -hmm. So for example, when I started cooking, I started reading all about food and the most amazing column, the most like to me, the highest column in the land about food was the New York Times magazine food column. And I read every single one for the past 20 years. And then a few years ago, I found out that one of the columnists was leaving so I just blind, I blind found the address, the email address of the person who now is my editor, Claire, and Sam Sifton. And I wrote them this crazy email, like just this three line email being like, hey, guys, like, you don't know who I am, but I am your next columnist. <laughs> I've wanted this for so long. And they never responded. And I was kind of embarrassed. I was like, should I send it? Should I not? And I was like, well, what do I have to lose? So I pressed send and they never wrote back. And then two years after that, They, you know, Sam was like, hey, do you want to do this thing? So I was like, I don't know if on the way, you know, maybe that planted a seed. Who knows? And I've asked them both. They're like, we have no idea what you're talking about. We don't remember. So, but to me, it's like I put it out there. I'm really good at asking for things. And I'm also really good at being told no. Like if people tell me no, I'm like, okay, that's not happening this way. I'll go figure this thing out. I don't really get discouraged by that. Maybe because I've been told no so many times. So, um, I, I always encourage people to like try to develop a thicker skin because rejection is not bad. Failure is not bad. And also, I mean, like one of the things that you saw in your time at Chez Panisse was that every time somebody was like throwing up another, no, here's another hurdle, like go read a bazillion books, go do this, like go find this. I mean, it's like, it seems like your experience of that was, but if I do it, like over time you start to realize it's not a no. It's just like, are you willing to go there? Are you willing to do what it takes to get where you want to go? That was definitely what they were doing was yeah. trying to weed out people. Because I think a lot of people at that time certainly came through and were like enchanted by it right. and wanted that. But they had no business being in there because they had zero skills. And that's not to say that they don't take on no, people who know nothing. It's just that you have to be willing. You have to be a quick study. You have to be willing to work hard. You're, they don't want someone who's going to come in there and complain about having to pick right. up the dirty mat. And there's a lot of delusion yeah. also. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of like, and it's funny. We, my wife was in the restaurant industry for about 10 years in New York. And like we re- learned really quick. It's brutally hard. It's crazy hours. And everybody, like remember we said, like everybody wants to write a book. 
so many people have this fantasy of saying like, you know, I want to own a restaurant. And, and the, the illusion is I'm just going to own this place and I'm going to walk in and everyone will be at tables having a wonder. And I'm just going to wander around. How is your meal? And this is my place. And, and I'll wander in and then I'll wander out and it'll largely run itself. And, but the, the day to day life is pretty brutal. It's, um, yeah. There's always something so breaking, like, someone's yeah. sick, nobody shows up. Right. So it's like, you have to sort of snap somebody out of that. But, um, so you're, you're sort of doubling down, you're committing everything. Every time there seems to be a no, like your brain starts to be able to translate it as, okay, so what does this really mean? And how do I, how do I like move through it? And over time you start to become an extraordinary chef. I'm saying that. I know you might have not necessarily say that, um, and develop, um, or absorb this theory of cooking, which is not, here's a recipe, follow it. Here's a recipe, follow it, but really understand the elements like these, these four powerful elements. And once you do that, everything becomes possible. Yeah. I mean, for me, a big part of that was the fact that Chez Panisse really cross trains its cooks. And so these people who I was learning from and watching, I was in such awe that I would come in and they were thrown every day what seemed to be curveballs. Like the menus were written and they changed every single day. And it, they had to do with the chef's whims and the seasons and what was available. And there was no like obvious method to the magic, certainly not to somebody who didn't understand anything. And so... You know, one day we would make, I don't know, French onion soup. The next day we would make, you know, um, lasagna. The next day we were making couscous. The next day we were making clams from Barcelona or whatever. Like it was just, I was like, how do they know how to make everything? It's not like they read one cookbook and memorized the recipes. It's not even like they read 30 cookbooks and memorized the recipes. They can do anything. And we would sit in these meetings that were more poetry and lyricism than mm. they were like instruction. And the chef might say like, and then I just want it to feel a little bit like this or be a little bit like this or look a little bit like this. And then these cooks would just get up and go do it and do not. And by it, I mean, make dinner for a hundred people in three hours perfectly. You know, we would have the menu meeting was done at two thirty, and dinner started at five thirty. So they literally had three hours to, you know, make lasagna from scratch, like butcher entire animals and get them on a spit and get them cooking, braise stuff, like make stocks. And that is a remarkable achievement. It really is. You have to be calm, but you have to be fast. And they, I couldn't believe that there was never any doubt or there never appeared to be any doubt about what to do. And, and so the, I just didn't understand. It took me a long time to understand that beef bourguignon and braised chicken and, um, you know, pork shoulder that gets turned into pork, pork, pulled pork are all the same recipe. They just change a little bit of the liquid and the cut of meat, but what's in the pot is doing the same thing. Mm. And so over time, I noticed that we were always sort of coming back to these four things, to salt, fat, acid, and heat, that we always salted our meat the day in advance for, you know, for especially for braised or roasted dishes, to give the salt time to penetrate the meat and season it from within. And on any occasion that people forgot to do that, you could taste it. There was, it wasn't like there was some, someone had decreed long ago, do it this way. It was, there was a reason, which was taste. Taste dictated all of our choices, really. Mm -hmm. And we would come together to taste every dish. And often the thing was, oh, this needs a little bit more salt. And this needs a little bit more acid, a little bit of lemon. Or 
you know, before st- starting to saute onions, people would ask, do you want me to cook that in butter or in oil? And I always was like, oh, that's like the chef just being like, you know, why would they have an opinion about that? And then later you learn, well, if you're making something from southern Italy, they don't use butter there. So if you start with butter, your dish will never taste truly southern Italian. And if you're making, I don't know, Indian food, don't use olive oil. They don't have olive trees there. So you figure out, oh, the fat matters, you know, and the temperature of the fat matters because the pastry cooks were obsessed with cold butter. And on the savory side, we always wanted like weird, soft, warm butter. Yeah. And acid was always this like tweak often at the end, like, or the fact that always braises needed wine. And I was like, why does there have to be wine in it? And I came from a family that didn't drink wine. So I felt weird, like if I wanted to make something at home, adding wine. So I was like, well, maybe if I do, you know, a little bit extra tomato, that acidity helps. And if I didn't do wine, I could taste that it tasted totally different than the one at work. And heat for me was kind of the biggest light bulb in a lot of ways because there were so many ways that I didn't understand how the cooks knew how to crank the stove or how to crank the oven and things just came out well. And so, but whereas I was like, well, does it be, should it be 325 or 350? Should it be 18 minutes or 22 minutes? And over time I realized, well, for one thing in a restaurant, people are always opening and closing the ovens to get stuff in and out. So the temperature is never what it says it is anyway. And then things like, I remember there was one day where I had to make tomato soup and there was no more stove space. The stove was too crowded. So they told me to build a fire in the fireplace and cook over the fireplace. And I was terrified. I didn't understand how that could possibly be that. You know, and over time I started to realize a fire is just the same as a gas burner. You just can't turn it up and down. So what you do is you move your pot to the hot spot or the cool spot. Mm. And so you change the location of the pot rather than the flame itself. And um, those things over time gave me this understanding. And I went to Chris and I said, oh, like I see this thing, salt, fat, acid, heat. And he was like, yeah, duh, like we all know that. And I said, it's not in any of the huge stack of books you've told me to read. It's not in any of these recipes. You know, no one's ever told me this. I've been here a year and a half or two years. Why didn't anyone tell me if you all know it, you know? And I understood that if no one had told me, then nobody was telling anybody else who was reading these books. Mm. And at that time I was like, I'm going to write a book about this one day. And I started taking notes and then I realized I didn't know anything. So it just became the system into which I filed away everything that I learned. And it became the language that I developed to teach other young cooks. You know, by the time I met Michael Pollan, I'd been doing that for 10 years. So when he asked me to teach him how to cook, it was natural. It was naturally the language that I used. And he picked up on that and he really encouraged me to turn it into a book. Yeah. And when Michael says, this is the book. <laughs> totally. You listen because I had by then bringing, I'd been bringing him like really bad ideas, yeah. really bad ones. And he was like, these are bad ideas to me. And so I was hesitant in a lot of ways, even though I knew I wanted to write that book for so long because I knew it would be hard because I'd never seen a book like that before. Right. And Because how- there's no typical structure for you yeah. to follow for that. I mean- in the, okay, so you've got these four things, but other than that, like there wasn't a cookbook. It was so interesting too. So, I mean, the short of it is that you end up writing this extraordinary book and- Very short of it. <laughs> um, very, very short of it. I know it's like, you know, but but you start working on this I, and I guess maybe we should go into that a little no, bit. No, no, I just um, mean it took me a lot of years to figure out how to do right, it. Right, but, but also because the process of you then shifting back to being like, okay, so I'm in author mode now. Like I'm in writer mode. Like I've I've got- this incredible decade plus of experimentation, of input, of figuring this thing. And I've got the structure, like I have the the macro frame of what I want to write. But then when you sit down 
And especially because you have such reverence for both writing and for the craft of cooking. Mm-hmm. Like when you sit down oh and God. you know, like, okay, I need to honor, I need to honor everything, like both of these worlds on a level and like your standard for what you want to do is so high. Thank you for noticing. <laughs> um, I mean, mindset wise, it must it have was, been so hard. It was so hard and so um, crippling. And I had so many waves and I honestly continue to have so many waves of um, imposter syndrome. I actually got this amazing writing residency that was in Point Reyes in West Marin. And it's like a two-week residency. And there's an amazing bookstore there, just like a short walk from the house. And I was like, okay, I'm going to write this book proposal here at this house. So I would walk down to the bookstore and look at all the cookbooks. And I was like, well, all these books exist. What do I have to say? Like what I'm saying is actually is part of all these books. You know, and I have this amazing friend, Tamar Adler, who's an extraordinary writer and her book, An Everlasting Meal, had just come out. And it said a lot of the same things that I believed. And I was just like, well, her book already did it. Like, I don't need to do it. And so that was really discouraging. And then I am a student of Michael's in many ways. And I was a student of his words well before I met him. And I had a lot of appreciation and admiration for the way that he can take a very complicated subject that he's curious about and take you as the reader on this learning journey mm. where you're doing it together. Because, I mean, it's this is an age-old thing of experiential journalism of like, I'm going to learn this thing. I'm going to take you along with me. But he has a way of doing it where um, you never feel condescended to. And also he's kind of a dope and like you get to like, you kind of love that he's a dope and like him being a dope makes you feel like, well, if he's a dope and I'm a dope, like I can trust him. And, and, and yet he's an extraordinarily talented writer. So he can tell these beautiful, beautiful stories. And there was just this incredible balance that he had that I really, I, I looked up to so much and I decided I was going to do that in my book. So I set out to do that, but I realized that I couldn't because I needed to have some measure of authority to tell you what to do because I was, I was your teacher here. Mm. And so I couldn't take you on the learning journey where I made a million mistakes. But what I could do was remember back to them and tell those stories of all those mistakes, because that was what I did a lot of the time in my cooking classes. And I taught people, I would be like, oh, I know this seems impossible and scary. And let me tell you about the mistake that I made when this seemed impossible and scary. And that's probably the same mistake you were making. And this is why you fix it and how you fix it and how you go on from there. And so I had seen that work for people in my class. So I just had to figure out how to do it on the page. So in the beginning, my first draft, I was trying to be Michael Pollan and I couldn't be. My second draft, I tried to be Tamar Adler and I couldn't be. And eventually I realized I just had to be myself. But it took me a long time, at least two more drafts of the book for my editor to come to me directly and say, you need to step into the authority and stop being wishy-washy. Mm. Like you have to own this. And that was really hard, but cause I also hate the idea that I'm being bossy to somebody or something, even though I can be very bossy, but <laughs> so I realized, um, but I, I figured out how to do it with humor and, and with humility. A lot of, yeah. And a lot there's, of self-deprecation. There's a, right, there's a, there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of humility yeah. and it's, and as much as it is like, you're clearly in a role of authority when you write and, and I'm sure when you cook and teach as well, um, you're, you're very much also your humanity leads, you know, your openness and your beginner's mind continues to lead. And I think that's what makes it okay for everybody to step into it. Cause the book you wrote on, you know, is not a typical cookbook in any way, shape or form, you know, yes. There are recipes, like there are, you know, there are things to do, but you really, you are going on a journey. It's not a Michael Pollan style journey, but it's a journey. 
Totally. And my goal was, you know, my goal as a teacher, my goal at all times in all the things that I do is to give people the tools so that they ultimately don't need me. You know, I want you to be self-reliant. And and it's funny. I want to do for you what my therapist is trying to do for me. <laughs> <laughs> and so Through and food so, and self-discovery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Save you so, a couple, cut a little bit of money in 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> and it'll be a lot more delicious. <laughs> so it's, but I do think, I think the world sort of conspires and certainly like the modern capitalistic world with Instagram certainly conspires to send us messages at all times that we don't have or we don't know what we need, especially about cooking, that you need this fancy tool, that you need this fancy ingredient, that you need to go take this like class or whatever. But the thing is, is as humans, like a lot of this stuff is just built into our DNA and our, you know, we evolved to taste for certain reasons and for certain things. And we evolved to like certain things because we need salt in our bodies because, you know, um, yeah, we need to consume certain fats that our bodies can't produce. You already know that even if you think you don't, you might just not have the vocabulary for it. Mm. So if I can give you the vocabulary for it and help you understand how to make the decisions, then maybe you won't need me or you won't need other recipes or other cookbooks. Or if you feel like you're going to use them, you can feel a little bit more um, empowered to substitute something or to not have to go out to the store <laughs> if you're out of spinach and use chard, you know, and understand why a recipe calls for something so you can make better decisions and be a better cook with a lot less pain. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes so much sense. And, um, and what you created was really beautiful. Um, and then when it released out into the world, I'm really curious about this, actually. So you, you've written this gorgeous book. It's a big book, too. Working with Wendy to illustrate this, Wendy McNaughton, who's like a beautiful, incredible illustrator. The day before, this book is about to move out into the world. And like this thing that you've now been working on, you've written multiple manuscripts of. Um, you've had success in the world of cooking, but now like you've wanted to be a writer from the time you were a little kid. And this is like the first really big, uh, this is like, I want to write a book. This is, this is the first, like the night before, um, how are you feeling? Well, um, Wendy and I were in New York yeah. for our book, like release and our book tour. And we were in a hotel together. We had rooms next to each other and Wendy made me, Wendy, I have a lot of friends in my life who are really good at making me appreciate the milestones because I am in such autopilot achievement mode that I'll put my head down and be like, okay, like this book's coming. What do I have to do to promote it? Like I would have not noticed, you know? <laughs> and so I wouldn't have taken the time to like sit down and have that feeling. So in the week leading up to it, I remember I went to therapy and I, and, and actually the months leading up to it, I had gone to therapy and been really worried about um, what I knew I would probably do if I wasn't careful, which was let my self-worth ride on the wave of either criticism or, you know, positive or negative criticism. Right. And I didn't want to have to do that roller coaster. So I asked my therapist, what do I do? How do I prevent this? Because I've always, you know, lived and died by outside <laughs> by outside acceptance and I need to change that because this is going to be so much more high stakes for me than anything ever has that I can't let that happen. So he told me the way was that I, we would have to come up with a definition that I felt comfortable for, um, comfortable with about success, like what success meant to, f what meant to me. And so I 
over the course of many weeks, realized that what I realized I could control was what I had done. And I knew that I had given everything I could give, that I had done every draft I could do, that I had called in every favor I could call in, that I had made Wendy redo things 900 times and our designer and asked for every possible thing. I had never compromised. And knowing that to me was the success. And if that landed with the world, then that landed with the world. And if the world didn't see it, then they didn't want this thing that I had made, but like I could at least be happy with the thing that I had made because I knew that I had done everything I could do to make it as good as possible. So by then I felt good about that. I knew that I had given everything I had given. But the night before, Wendy was like, we have to go have a glass of champagne at midnight. So we went downstairs in the hotel bar and we had like nuts and champagne. And she was like, it's your moment, you know? And for her, this was her ninth book or something. Yeah. She knew how big a deal it was for me. And I'm so grateful that she really made me take that time. And and my agent is also really wonderful and, and very much a friend who also makes me stop and appreciate. And right now, I mean, it's gotten so much bigger. These is, These things are so much bigger and so much more. Most of them I don't absorb. They sort of just roll off me. It's too much. And I just have to like feel good about any little part of it that I can let myself feel. Yeah, because I mean, as we sit here recording this in the studio, you know, so the book comes out, it makes a huge splash, huge success. That leads to other interesting opportunities. Um, you create a four-part Netflix series um, based on the sulfide acid heat, which is, by the way, anyone who will throw a link in the show notes, um, I sat, I, I literally watched it with my daughter and and she wanted to watch, binge watch the whole thing. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 no. Let's like, it, this is so beautiful and so good. And and um, the storytelling and the, the cinematography and the food, it was like you could taste it through the screen and just like the beautiful humanity that came through. I was like, let's savor this one. And literally like they forced us to watch it one, ep one part, you know, like at a time on different days. So when you launch into that world, you know, where also you go from being in a fairly solitary process to this, I mean, big, massive collaboration, big production, traveling <laughs> yeah. around the world. The pace of things compounds exponentially. The expectations go up. The budgets that go into it are, you know, like ridiculous. And there's a sense that there's so much more on the line. So you're operating on a whole different level and you're forward facing in public mm -hmm. on a whole different level. These two words just keep popping into my mind as you're speaking during the conversation. One word is rest and the other word is savor. And you kind of spoke about your, it's, it's almost like, it feels like part of your work is to learn to rest and to learn to savor. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because in certain ways I can totally savor the way something tastes. Yeah. I'm not so good at letting things like really penetrate my heart and feel mostly good things. You know, I can feel bad things really well. <laughs> As we all okay. <laughs> And it's funny at one point recently, the show's come out and it's been so successful. At one point recently, I have been shielded throughout the process of making the show and somewhat since it's come out. And I do a lot of personal shielding where I don't go that much on it the internet anymore. I don't really go on Twitter. I don't really go. I don't read most of the press that comes out. I don't really go on Instagram. There's just too much coming at me. And it's almost like universally very positive. But I had a moment actually where I was like, what is this happening? Why can't I read all the comments and just take in all of this positivity? And I went in onto Twitter, which is known for being a not positive place. 
And I noticed what I was doing when I was reading the messages that people were writing me was I was waiting for the bad one, mm. you know? So I would read two or three and then I would get increasingly nervous because they were all so positive. And I was like, well, if these are all so good, there's going to be a bad one. And I didn't want to be vulnerable. Like I, I felt very afraid being vulnerable for that bad one because I'm the person who might get a million positive ones, one weird criticism, and then only remember the criticism. Man. And so I have some loosening up in my heart to do. I have some vulnerable making to do to be able to know that that criticism is coming and that it won't kill me and to be able to feel it. And I think when I can open up to the full possibility that something and to letting whatever comes come in, <laughs> then I will be able to feel, you know, really get that savoring. But it's almost like I don't let the savoring happen because I'm afraid to let whatever bad thing happen. Mm. And because they're like tied together in your mind. In my mind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, when's the other shoe going to drop, you know? And so that's part of it. I'm not proud of it, but at least I realized what it was so I can like sort of circle around it and figure out how to deal with it. And rest is the other thing. And I have a few friends who are just constantly like texting me, like, eat your vegetables, go to bed early. <laughs> just <laughs> so, breathe. Yeah, totally. Right? But if you think, I mean, think about it in the context of food, right? It's like so many things like, okay, so you do the cooking, but somewhere in that process, very often towards the end, if you don't let it rest. Yeah. Like, not taste that good. is the secret ingredient is yeah. when you do nothing. Totally. Totally. Or, you know, I think a lot about agriculture and fallow times, yeah. you know, and nature and stuff. And like, that's what winter's for. Or, right. or um, yeah, leaving a field fallow. And so I understand that at least, in, like I've grown to understand that right. I also just Cognitively. <laughs> yeah, I can't go, go, go. And so I've done, I'm like better at taking preemptive measures. Mm. So for example, before all of this started, I planned for myself that I would have a month off in January and I rented a cabin in the desert. And it's not even so much that it's complete vacation. Like I'll still have work to do, but it's just kind of a break from the pace of all of this. And it's, it's a built-in thing. Like the, the publicists know they can't plan something and I need to figure out what's going to come after if I, I do want to resume this or if I do want to move to making the next creative thing, I do intuitively understand I need to have quiet time without a whole bunch of like external input so that I can figure out like what's happening inside and what is going to, what's going to be the next thing. Yeah. So one thing that happened since the show's come out and like so many opportunities are just constantly coming at me and things that seem probably before this would have seemed like incredible. And I should say yes to all of them. I think I've, I, I realized I just am not in a place to say yes or no to anything. So I'm just putting a hold on like any decision making until I have quiet time to figure out what makes sense to do. Cause otherwise I do, you know, I'm human and I'm like definitely like uh, still very much a child inside. So I'm always like, Ooh, that sparkly opportunity. Ooh, that like, Ooh, this, I would get to be close to this person. Ooh, look at that paycheck or something. And I, as I said before, like I know that if I don't decide to do something because I care about it in my heart, like I will be miserable. Mm. So it's better if I just don't say yes right now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so as we sit here coming full circle in our conversation in this container of the Good Life Project, if I offer out the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? To be with people that I love <laughs> around a table, to um, tell stories and listen to stories to get to appreciate the natural world, um, to take care of each other and feel taken care of. Ooh, to be very cozy on a lot of sheepskins, <laughs> um, to get to go swimming in the ocean, um, 
yeah, to get to garden, to be in a garden. Yeah, that's oh, those are, that's like to me, the ultimate good life. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time. So, you know, people are always kind of asking me, what other podcasts do I listen to? What's really good out there? And one of the shows that's one of my go-tos is actually hosted by an old friend of mine, Jordan Harbinger, The Jordan Harbinger Show. And I got Jordan to come on and talk about one particular episode. Hey, Jordan. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. So you recently did this fascinating episode where it was just you and it was called How to Ask for Advice. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, I started getting asked a lot for advice years and years ago. But most people who ask for advice, they're not really asking for advice. It took me way too long <laughs> to realize this. A lot of people were asking for permission to do the thing they wanted to do, or they were asking for validation of their idea. They might say, should I start a clothing line? Do you have any tips? And you know, I'd give them a real answer such as, oh, you should work in supply chain for a company that does clothing manufacturing, like Victoria's Secret, work there for four years and you'll learn the failure points in the business. And people would get angry with me for giving them that advice. Then I realized, ah, they don't really want advice. They want encouragement, they want validation. Some people do want advice and those people were getting lost in the shuffle. So I did a whole special on how to ask for advice and none of this will you mentor me type stuff, but very specific, intentionable, explicit, actionable advice and how to formulate questions and get responses from people that might not normally respond. And I found this to be very helpful for my audience because I think if you do really want advice, you should be able to ask for it. But I think there's a lot of folks that need to realize that they're not really interested in advice and they don't need encouragement, so they should just go out and start. And I think this is a good way to separate those two ideas. Love it. And you can hear more about How to Ask for Advice and other episodes by checking out Jordan's podcast at jordanharbinger.com or find him as The Jordan Harbinger Show on any podcast app. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.